and welcome to Texas Purple Politics with Dr. John Francis Burke. John's on faculty in the Political Science Department at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. He teaches courses on religion and politics, political theory, and intercultural politics. John's the author of Mestizo Democracy from 2002 and Building Bridges, Not Walls, published in 2016. John, one of your personal passions is the intersection of faith and politics. And I think one of the more interesting intersections in that neighborhood in recent years is the overwhelming support of America's evangelical community for a president who, on the face of it, seems to be the exact opposite of what evangelicals say they stand for. But you say there is a logic to this seemingly unholy marriage. Can you explain? My sense is that President Trump's urgency to get his headline-grabbing campaign rallies rolling again is based on what he sees as his role as a secular evangelist for people who feel that they are disenfranchised. Attendees at these rallies find a sense of acceptance and well-being at these rallies, a powerful balm to those who feel that they have been left behind. The content of Trump's sermon, so to speak, draws upon a historical evangelical mistrust of the infidel. In Old Testament terms, the president fulfills the role of the strong leader that will smite the foes of the believers. There are evangelist authors and speakers who have argued that he is Cyrus from the Old Testament or Nehemiah from the New Testament, essentially a savior with a sword. Now, are these types of occurrences, these awakenings, common in American history? U.S. history has periodically been characterized by great awakenings in which charismatic preachers galvanized people through emotional spiritual revivals. The first great awakening was with Jonathan Edwards in the first half of the uh, 1700s. After the War of 1812, as uh, there was a second Great Awakening, as John Fay notes, and believe me, President Trump has figured a way to capitalize and channel the fear that evangelical Protestants have projected in these awakenings. Whether it was the fear of Puritans toward religious diversity, evangelicals toward deist outlooks among the U.S. founders, know-nothing Protestants toward Catholics, Southern evangelicals, especially the Ku Klux Klan toward African Americans, or fundamentalists against modernists in the 20th century, the evangelical heritage persistently has vilified some undesirable other that they feared. In the Second Great Awakening, again, in the first half of the 19th century, there was a vitriolic reaction against the arrival of Irish and German Catholic immigrants. Now, there were many things positive about that Second Great Awakening in terms of being against slavery and beginning to acknowledge more role for women. But when you read documents such as Lyman Beecher's Plea for the West, which is sort of one of the documents of Manifest Destiny, he emphasizes these ideas of intelligence, moral principles, patriotism, and yet he sees immigrants as sort of undermining that. He even uses the phrase of immigrants wielded by sinister design, which is a not too disclosed reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It's almost as if they were saying, are we going to allow Satan in this Garden of Eden that we've created here in the United States? President Trump has also effectively secularized this heritage through his political rallies leading up to 2016, and he has kept the faithful happy with frequent and raucous rallies since then. Essentially, when people go to a Trump rally, they are going to an old-fashioned tent revival, rolling again before the 2020 election, regardless of a pandemic, near record unemployment, and a national crisis over policing and race is critical to his campaign. Is there a logic to where President Trump holds these rally revivals? Well, certainly they have a tendency 
to be in what would be termed flyover country, essentially what we call the red states in between the East Coast and West Coast. This is also why more recently he has been in places like Tulsa or Arizona. He tends to focus on communities that have not been prospering. Timothy Cardin noted in his text, Alienated America, that President Trump did considerably better in 2016 among Republicans who rarely went to church than he did among Republicans who frequently did so. Much of Trump's support comes from veterans and blue-collar workers in places where the economy and institutions of civil society have collapsed. For generations, institutions such as unions, service clubs, and especially churches provided these communities with connectedness. Their demise left people without the resources and networks to live meaningful lives. Therefore, in their own minds, they become alienated from the system and yearn for someone who will, in a sense, make their lives great again. Interestingly enough, in conservative counties where the economy was doing well and there was active participation in churches and other civic organizations, not only did folks vote for other Republican candidates in the 2016 primaries like Kasich or Rubio, they saw no need to make America great again. Their communities were thriving, not dying. President Trump focuses his rallies on those communities that have been depressed, not the prospering ones. So is his support strong and stable as he heads into the 2020 election? I mean, the Tulsa rally certainly looked questionable. There has been a drop-off in his support, both among white evangelicals and white Catholics since mid-April. It's down about 7%. But in a poll that was just released, a study that was just released yesterday by the Pew Center, by a poll that was conducted a week ago, there's still about 80% of white evangelicals indicate they will still vote for President Trump and that most white Protestants and white Catholics say they still intend to vote for Trump. I think the context of this is that especially many evangelicals, even from the more prosperous communities, have become Trump supporters between 2016 and today because they believe he stands for what they value. Evangelicals self-identify as being most disenfranchised voters. Trump has tapped into this politics of fear by demonizing Democrats, the news media, liberals, Latinx and Muslim immigrants, and even black, indigenous, people of color, members of Congress. When the faithful gather at these rallies, they listen for vilification of the other. So back to the word intersection, John. Are we at a crossroad in this so-called culture war? If you look at uh, Andrew McDonald's book, The Turner Diaries, which was written in the 1970s, he actually projected that there was going to be a race war in the United States, an actual hot war. And this actually motivated Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombings. And so you have the magical rallies going on. On the same time, you've had the protests, uh, especially over Black Lives Matter. And there seemed to be a lot of culture clashes. The liturgy of us versus them incites chaos, not cooperation. At the same moment in the nationwide protests against racism, the cultural diversity of protesters, coupled with the growing number of young evangelicals open to LBGTQ rights, reinforced by the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling protecting LGBTQ employment rights, we are seeing a ray of hope for intercultural community. Do you see hope for change as early as this coming election? Oh, I think it's quite possible. You can just track the money. Arizona, Texas, Georgia have become swing states. Even as late as 2016, the GOP had no idea that they would have to put resources in places like this, in addition to places like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, which have been traditionally the swing states in recent elections. But the positive side of this is that even in these newly swing states, such as Texas and Georgia, voters are increasingly embracing an alternative civil religion that articulates inclusion, intercultural interaction, and economic justice. 
Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community. MLK preached the interrelatedness of human beings, meaning that our political, social, and economic forms are incomplete whenever any citizen is denied their ability to enrich a community with their particular gifts. In this context, in 1960, the key issue was could a Catholic come President of the United States? Commonweal, at the beginning of that campaign year, put forth an editorial arguing no, the key issue was instead are we going to shift from being a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society with the tradition of pluralism to being a genuinely pluralistic society where no creed, no language, no race, no ethnicity will be the dominant form of organizing the community? This is very consonant with MLK's notion of the beloved community. I am fairly confident that we have the ingredients going forward that cultivate in some ways a civil religion that cuts between a pure secular humanism in a sense on the left and an evangelical, rigid evangelical perspective on the right. It seems to me if we pursue the beloved community, we can generally realize the dream of our founders, e plurimus unum, out of many one, and this seems to me a perfect message for this 4th of July holiday. That's all the time we have for this edition of Texas Purple Politics. Your host is Dr. John Francis Burke of Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. John is the author of two books, Mestizo Democracy from 2002 and Building Bridges, Not Walls, 2016. Both of those books are available on Amazon by searching for John Francis Burke. That's B-U-R-K-E. The theme music for this podcast is from the CD Celtic Charm, arranged and produced by Howard Baer of BearOnBase.com. Mm-hmm.